Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Fathers, we continue to worship now by considering your word together and hearing it preached. We, we pray that our hearts would continue in that, that we would continue to worship. And Lord, we are approaching a text that may be difficult for us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would soften our hearts. Please bring conviction where it is needed. And please follow it very quickly with great confidence in our Savior. Pray, Father, that where, where sin is large in our minds, Jesus would be larger and sweeter. That you would use this text and the things that we will see in your word to cause our affection to grow for him to give us a greater desire to please you, Father. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus himself. Amen. Please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. We'll be, we'll be reading and studying the first eight verses of that chapter. So as you're finding your place there, if you would please... Stand with me, and we'll read that passage together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 1, through verse 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. You can be seated. This is, this is a difficult text. Not because it's hard to understand, it's actually quite straightforward. It may be difficult for us or hard for us to hear, hard for us to, to listen to it preached. For some of us, maybe because we just are uncomfortable with the subject of sexual immorality, especially in mixed company. For others of us, statistics would say, There have, there's been sexual sin within the last 24 hours. Statistically, we, we, we should acknowledge that the vast majority of us in the room have 
have sinned sexually. So whether it's been in the last 24 hours or the last 24 years, we read a text like this and it just brings up, brings up bad memories, perhaps causes us to feel a bit condemned. Maybe others of us that find this text difficult for an even more personal reason, we have been sinned against sexually. And so we have we've tried for, for years perhaps to forgive someone else who has sinned sexually. Tried even harder to forget and then we read a text like this and we're just reminded all over again and it seems as if we're just starting over. Well, I'm going to preach this text this morning but I'm going to do it within the context of the reality of the gospel. And if God is kind, and we know that He is, then there will be conviction of sin when there, where there is sin. That's a kindness of the Lord. And there will be a call to repent. That also is a kindness of the Lord. He, he, would, he would remove us from the sin that makes us miserable. My prayer has been this week, and and I'm hopeful that no one will leave this morning in a state of despair, but rather that we would all have hearts full of hope and joy, reminded that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where, Where sin stained us, Jesus washed. Where sin condemned, Jesus atoned and said, it is finished. Where sin would enslave us, still, Jesus would free us. And He is powerful to save. And He holds out hope this morning for everyone enslaved. So we find ourselves this morning at the beginning of a section in 1 Thessalonians dealing with Christian living. And so... The first two points in our, in our message are going to deal with Christian living, Christian living in general. The second two points will deal with this issue of sexual purity specifically. So we'll, we'll deal with the general first and then move to sexual purity specifically. First of all, we find that the, the faithful disciple, that is somebody who's actually following Jesus, that person strives to please God more and more. The faithful disciple strives to please God more and more. Look at verse 1 with me again. Paul writes, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Of course, the, the main idea here is that it is the aim of a disciple of Jesus Christ to please God. Not just to please Him, but to please Him more and more. And, and Paul loads this verse with language that, that indicates we should approach this with a great sense of urgency. He says, we ask and urge you. It's of the utmost importance that you seek to please God more and more. He, he also appeals to the authority of Jesus. That's what he means when he says, we urge you in the Lord Jesus. He's saying, we're, we're coming to you with the authority of Jesus, and we want you to hear what we say with a consciousness that what we say is said from the Lordship of Jesus Christ Himself. Further, this is so urgent that it's a repetition of something that they've already heard. 
And it needs to be heard again. This is no one-off instruction. Clearly, this is something that bears repeating. It's crucial to the Christian life. Moreover, the fact that the Thessalonians are already obeying this does nothing to decrease the urgency. So Paul's coming back to these people in Thessalonica already living in ways that please the Lord. And he's saying to them, look, you've got to do this more and more. It's of the utmost urgency, even for those already obeying in recognition of the authority of Christ to strive to please God more and more. Some of us, we hear that language of pleasing God and, and, and we may have come from a, a background steeped in legalism. And so we, we begin to get a little nervous when we, when we hear about pleasing God. Exhortations to please God more and more. Do more and more. Legalists tend to think of God's default disposition toward them as one of displeasure. And so those who are steeped in legalism, they're, they're constantly trying to, to flip that script. And, and if they believe that Jesus has earned God's love for them, well then they feel still as if the Father could revert at any moment back to wrath. And all it's going to take for me is just one slip up. So... This idea of pleasing God can carry with it a lot, a lot of baggage for some of us. But listen well to me, please. God's default disposition toward you, believer, is love. That's fantastic news. God's default disposition toward you, believer, is love. Read the high priestly prayer of John 17 before Jesus went to the cross. Read John chapter 6 before Jesus went to the cross. Read Ephesians chapter 1 which talks about God's plan from eternity past. God's default disposition toward you, believer, is love. Love for you, for me, is what moved Him to graciously send Jesus to free us from sin and death. So when we as believers talk about pleasing God, we're not talking about earning anything. What there is to earn has been earned. It's been earned by Jesus. And God stamped it earned when He raised Jesus from the dead. There's nothing left to do. The Gospel is a story of grace. God gives us what we need in spite of what we deserve. He gives it freely. We're, we're all fallen in Adam. All of us, we, we, we are conceived with hearts completely bent against God, dead in our trespasses and sins, to use Paul's language from Ephesians chapter 2. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We love sin. We hate God. We can't please God. Don't want to please God. And that disposition and then the acts that flow from it, sins, they doom us to eternity away from the glorious presence of this wonderful God under the wrath of this omnipotent God. The fact that we could not please God in our lostness, that does not mean that God did not love us. Our pleasing God doesn't make Him love us. He loves us because He loves us. That's Deuteronomy chapter 7. His love is what moved Him to save us precisely when we were unable to please Him. Precisely when we could do nothing for Him. Grace is God's unmerited favor. We don't earn it. 
And if we could earn it, it would no longer be grace. That's what Paul writes in, in Romans 11.6. He gives it freely to whomever He wills. It was by grace that God sent His Son to rescue us from sin. Listen to this from Sinclair Ferguson, what he says about grace. He says, grace is not a commodity, and it's not a substance. This is, it's grace in Christ, for God's grace to us is Christ. What's the first verse that many of us memorized when we were children? John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It was while we were sinners, displeasing to Him, that the Father gave His Son to save us. I call that good news. So Jesus came. And He came willingly, joyfully. Because Jesus wants to please the Father. And He lived righteously on the earth, acquiring this perfect record of obedience that you and I never could, and He did it on our behalf. Then He went to the cross and bore the wrath of God for our sins. So then on the third day, the Father raised Him from the dead, signaling at least two things. First, that Jesus' righteous sacrifice was sufficient to pay for our sin completely. And secondly, that Jesus now has the right to transfer His righteousness to the account of everyone who trusts in Him. Now, the crediting of Jesus' righteousness to our account is what leads the Father to declare us perfectly righteous. We call that justification. Justification is a legal declaration by the Father that we are righteous In Christ, we wear the righteousness of Jesus. And what all of this means is that for the believer, there is no sin left to pay for and there is no act of righteousness left to accomplish to secure a relationship with the Father. Jesus has done it all and He's done it all at the Father's gracious direction. So now, as believers redeemed In Christ, children of the Father, when we are called to please God, it's not to earn anything. Our relationship with the Father has been secured in Christ. Our motive then in pleasing God comes from a place of complete freedom in Christ and security in the love of God. Pleasing God is nothing more, nothing less than living a lifestyle of worship celebrating this God who has done so much for us in Christ to make us His own. Our God is so magnificent and kind that love compels us to please Him more and more. More and more. We're never done. And because we love Him, this is not a drudgery, but it's a blessed joy, just like it was for Jesus. Just like it was for Jesus. You know, Jesus, read the Gospel of John. Read the whole thing. It's, it's worth your time. It's worth it to do it in, in one sitting. And count how many times you find Jesus saying things like, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. He delighted to do it because He loved the Father. Oh, that we, that we would be free from legalistic striving, trying to earn a place with the Father, and rather enjoy loving striving like Jesus, pleasing God because we have a place with Him. 
we would be disciples of Jesus following in His footsteps, that is what we would do. We want to please God more and more because we are His. So the faithful disciple is what the faithful disciple does. Strives to please God more and more. The faithful disciple does that by pursuing Christ-likeness broadly, generally, in every area. By pursuing Christ-likeness broadly. Look at verse 2 with me. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. The faithful servant, the faithful disciple wants to please God. How does the faithful disciple do that? By doing God's will. This is quite intuitive, right? If I want to please my wife, I don't seek my will, but I seek her will. This is precisely why Jesus also says things like this in John. John 6.38 For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. Jesus wants to do the Father's will because He wants to please the Father. And so if we would be disciples of Jesus, we would follow Him in that as well. Wanting to please the Father and pleasing the Father by doing the Father's will. Now what exactly is the Father's will for us? Paul gives it to us here. Our sanctification. Our sanctification. Now this is different than justification. Throwing out some big words here that some of us may not be familiar with. Justification is what we spoke about a moment ago. That's God's declaring us righteous in Jesus. We wear the righteousness of Christ. And it's on that basis that we spend eternity with Him. Sanctification is different. Sanctification is our actually being transformed into the image of Jesus. We're actually made holy, set apart from the world in our character and conduct over time. And it's a result of our being in Christ. So as we become more and more like Jesus, we're being sanctified. To grow in Christ's likeness is, is simply to grow in love, to grow in joy. Grow in peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. To grow in self-control. Who on earth doesn't want all that? that that's, that's pleasurable. Being like Jesus is pleasurable. And so it's a kindness of the Lord to move us to become like Jesus, to transform us into His image. It's His kindness to us. It also glorifies the Father. Now, How does that work? Well, our, our becoming like Jesus demonstrates the wisdom and power of God at work in us. You can trace this line of thought through those first chapters of the book of Ephesians. God takes dead sinners like we all were. He takes dead sinners who hated God and hated one another, and He gives them spiritual life, and He gives them new hearts, gives them new desires and the Holy Spirit living inside of them so that they then love God and they love one another. They become like Jesus. So when Christ-likeness then is displayed in the church composed of formerly dead enemies of God, well then all creation is led, according to Ephesians 3.10, to say, only God could do this. All glory be to God. And so for the pleasure of being like Jesus, and so that our Father might be glorified, we should pursue Christ's likeness in every area of life. 
Now, this mention of sanctification here at the beginning of chapter 4 is an introduction to the next two chapters. And he's going to begin to address some specific areas of sanctification. The first of those is sexual purity. The faithful disciple seeks to please God more and more by pursuing sexual purity specifically. Pursues sanctification broadly and sexual purity specifically. We pick that up at the end of verse 3. That you abstain from sexual immorality. Now by saying this, Paul is not implying that the Thessalonians are already steeped in this and they need to stop. But rather the Thessalonians lived in a culture that was extremely sexually immoral. There, there was cult prostitution everywhere, which simply entailed fornication as an act of pagan worship. It was also a, a cultural norm for husbands to have mistresses. And on top of that, there was the celebration, the acceptance, the practice of homosexuality. So the Thessalonians, they're surrounded by this. And, and Paul... Even though they're not engaged in it, he's just said, you guys are doing great. You're doing what I've told you to do. I'm going to tell you again to do it though. Even though they're, they're obeying, all of this stuff is so dangerous that he's saying again, stay away. That's what abstain means. Stay far away from this stuff. And that makes Paul a good teacher, a good instructor, a good mentor. He's not waiting until they're knee deep in this stuff to address it. He's warning them ahead of time. I would ask you to consider how much different is modern-day America from first-century Thessalonica in this respect. Sexual immorality is so intricately woven into our culture, it's not a stretch at all to compare our, our modern world to the ancient world of pagan sexual idolatry. And, and for that reason... Even the person in the church who does not struggle at all with, with sexual sin needs to hear this message. Because even if we would not fall into that sin, the enemy would like to at least indoctrinate us in that sin so that we would say with the world, these things are okay. As a culture, we're soaking in pagan sexual idolatry. The exhortation to the believer is, stay far away from it. That phrase, sexual immorality, is translating a Greek word that broadly speaks of any kind of sexual sin, any kind of sexual activity that takes place outside of heterosexual marriage. Do not listen to all the noise, I beg you. If words mean things... And words mean things, okay? We all use words all the time. When, 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 you, go to, when you go to the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A and you order food, you expect words to mean things. So if you order a chicken sandwich and they give you, and they give you chicken nuggets, you're going to say, that's not what I ordered because words mean things. If words mean things, the Bible teaches... That heterosexual marriage is the only appropriate place for sexual expression. And that good context, that good context protects us from dangerous things. 
things that are bad for us, that do us harm, things like self-gratification, things like lust of all kinds, whether it takes place in the privacy of our own minds or, or fueled by a computer screen, like premarital relations, extramarital relations, homosexual relations. Stay away from it all, Paul is saying with that, with that one phrase, sexual immorality. Stay away from all of it. It doesn't please God. It isn't like Christ. And as disciples, we're called to be like Christ. This is not like Jesus. So stay away from it. Look at verse 4. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Some of you may have a translation that uses the word vessel instead of body. The reason for that is that the word in the text is vessel and not body. And so for interpreters, the question here is, is Paul saying control your own body or is he using this word vessel the way that Peter does in 1 Peter 3.7? Is he saying acquire your own spouse? Well, I, I hold that he is... He, he intends for us to read the word vessel to mean wife. And he, he, is, he is saying here, acquire your own wife. The reason that I would say that is that the verb here, it just simply does not mean to control. It doesn't mean to keep anything under control. It means to acquire something. And it's used all over the, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament and all over the New Testament to Buy things, to get things that you don't currently have. You don't acquire a body. You're born with one. And so this verb just doesn't go with this noun. But it, this is the word that Peter uses, as I've already mentioned in 1 Peter 3.7, to refer to a wife. And if we take this to mean take a wife or, or know to take a wife, then it sounds very much like what Paul has written in 1 Corinthians 7.2, which reads this way, Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul is simply reiterating here what's written all over the Scriptures, and that is that the appropriate, holy, honorable place for sexual activity is within the context of monogamous, heterosexual marriage. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you know to acquire your own vessel, that you have your own husband, that you have your own wife, that you learned the appropriate place for true sexual enjoyment, which is marriage. Now, some singles among us may be, may be thinking, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm looking for a spouse. So to you singles, I would say, praise God for that, keep looking. Listen, God's grace is sufficient for you, it really is. And, and to you, I would say, I would say, and, and I believe this is an implication of that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, that until you find a spouse, if it is the Lord's will for you to have a spouse, you just wear yourself out serving the Lord. Wear yourself out serving the Lord. I think that you'll find that His sweetness in fellowship and, and the sweetness of being used by Him in His work it is so much greater than the paltry pleasures of sin that you will find it far easier to say no to what the world, the flesh, and the devil are trying to foist upon you. Verse 5. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, 
don't exercise your sexual desire outside of marriage. Like who? He says, like the Gentiles. And all he means by that is like those who are outside the community of the saints. Gentiles is just, a, just an Old Testament term for those who don't know God. Now listen, listen carefully to me because I don't want to... I don't want to confuse what the text is saying. Paul is not saying that if you have sinned sexually, you are outside the community of the saints. But if you look very closely, he, he's saying that you are living like someone who is outside the community of the saints. Don't live like this. People who engage in sexual immorality, they are acting like people who are not in union with Jesus. Like they don't know God. Like they aren't saved. Like they are still enslaved to sin. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, please. 1 Corinthians 6. The Bible is clear. Any sexual activity outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage is incompatible with following Jesus. It doesn't fit with, with being a disciple of Jesus. Contrary to the lies of the world, Jesus has not freed us to do these things, but Jesus has freed us from these things. They enslave us. They, they condemn us to death. Jesus rescues us from these things. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You hear that? This is very clear language. He, he's just given us a list of lifestyles that are incompatible with life in Christ. They bring death. Those who practice these things, they don't know God. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so... By definition, they are unbecoming of those who do know God. He gives us that broad term again, sexual immorality. It's the same Greek word that we have already seen in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. But then he gives a couple of specific sexual sins as well. He mentions adultery and he mentions homosexuality. Now again, these are not only things that condemn us. Clearly they do. These verses would tell us that. People who do these things, they are condemned. These things condemn us. But they're also things from which our strong Jesus rescues us. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. He's talking to believers in Corinth. You were these things. You were drunkards. You were idolaters. You were homosexuals. You were adulterers. 
but you're not anymore. Listen, when the world, when the devil, when your own flesh feed you lies, saying things like, you are hopelessly stained. This particular thing that you have done, you cannot get away from the stain of this thing. Or, they say something like this, look, this is just who you are. Face it. Embrace it. You can't change. When, when they feed you those lies, please don't believe it. That They're not just lying about you. They're lying about the Lamb of God. And we ought not have it. We ought not have it. Please don't adopt these lies and believe them. And say, I believe in Jesus. Because if you say, I'm hopelessly stained. And, and I can't change. And you say, I believe in Jesus. You have to believe in some other Jesus. Because look at verse 11. This Jesus, this Jesus washes with His own, His own holy, spilled blood. He washes your soul so thoroughly that He makes it like the sin never happened. Believe in this Jesus. He's better. This Jesus sanctifies through His own Spirit who dwells inside of you. Changes a person from the inside out in their character and conduct. Gives them new desires. Makes them want new things. The very power that raised Him from the dead, His Spirit causes it to work in them to make them a new creation. Believe in this Jesus. He's better. The Father of this Jesus justifies. He says, you don't wear the old stain of your former sexual sin. You wear the very righteousness of the eternal Son of God. Believe in this Jesus. He is better. This Jesus says, such were some of you. Such were some of you, but I make all things new. Jesus came to set the captives free. Would mean, you believe that? That's not something that we just throw around, right? We actually believe that, don't we? That's who this Jesus is. He sets captives free. Now, that, that is not to say that our transformation, our actually living differently than we did before, that that happens overnight like our washing and our justification does. The washing, the justification happens in an instant. Our change into the image of Christ, that takes place slowly over time. But it happens no less certainly than does our washing and our justification. Believing in Jesus means rejecting the lies swirling all around us all the time and instead embracing this truth, such were some of you, if you know Christ, don't live like you don't know Christ. The Gentiles live like they don't know Jesus. And we ought not live like the Gentiles. The Gentiles live like they don't know God in another sense though. And, and this is truly tragic when believers live like they don't know God in the, this sense. Gentiles live like they don't know God in that they haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That, that, that the Lord is better than the pleasures of sin. 
They, they haven't given themselves over to meaningful, loving fellowship with the Father so that their, their hearts echo the sentiments of Psalm 16. I have no good apart from You. In Your presence there's fullness of joy. At Your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The Gentiles don't know that because they don't know God. We ought not live like the Gentiles. And if we find ourselves living like the Gentiles, walking in the darkness of sin associated with our former lostness, we should turn toward God in Christ and pursue greater knowledge of Him. If we're living like we don't know Him, let's strive to know Him all the more. Strive to taste and see anew daily that the Lord is good. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. Experience afresh that expulsive power of a new affection. Verse 6. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. If we would please God, we would avoid sexual transgression and the wronging of other people in this area. Now listen, the enemy is so cunning. And so he, he, he may come to you and say, look, look, there are, there are sexual sins that will hurt other people, but not this one over here. This is just you. It's just private. It's not hurting anybody. It's just you. So, so go ahead. Not true. Your, your, your spiritual life has a ripple effect that touches everyone around you. And habitually giving in to sin will dull your affection for Christ, which will inhibit your desire and ability to be a blessing to others. The closer that we are to the Lord, the more of a benefit we are to the growth of others around us. The more we are given to sin, the more of a detriment that we are to the spiritual life of others around us. Don't think that your sin doesn't hurt others just because you're doing it behind a closed door. It's affecting everyone around you. Worse, there are certainly cases, and many of us sadly can think of examples where sexual sin directly affects someone. We have, we have all seen marriages destroyed by it. We've seen churches split. We have seen the faith of people shipwrecked by it. And, and, and that is why Paul uses such strong language here about the Lord being an avenger. One who engages in these things plays with matches in the church. And Jesus doesn't take kindly to it. You know why? Because Jesus is a good husband. And He loves His bride. And if by your turning your nose to the voice of the Holy Spirit who is calling you to repent, by turning away from that voice and saying, no, I'm going to continue in my habitual, unrepentant sin, you are messing with the bride of Christ. And He is an avenger in these things. Look, this, this language here, this, this language is wrath language. This is not, this is not the chastening of, of a loving father from Hebrews 12. This is wrath. And so, those, of, those among us who, who, who are, are here this morning have, have struggled with sexual sin and are saying this morning, I, I'm going to turn. You're going to see a very different Jesus than the Jesus 
that will be seen by those who say, yes, I hear this message, but I'm going to continue headlong into sin, and I don't care what it does to the bride of Christ. You're going to see a very different Jesus. And, and I plead with you, brothers and sisters, go with the former. Go with the former. He is an avenger in these things. Faithful disciples seek to please God more and more by pursuing sexual purity. They do it from submissive hearts. That's our final point this morning. They do it from submissive hearts. Verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Now, this verse 7 is essentially the same idea that we saw in verse 3. If you're a, a grammar and literature nerd, this is what we call an inclusio. You can go and, and regale your friends and family this afternoon with what an inclusio is. Verse 3 is where we get this idea the first time. Then we come, we come to it again here in verse 7. These two verses are saying the same thing. God has not saved us so that we can continue living the way that we want to, but so that we can walk in faithfulness, so that we can be holy, so that we can enjoy Him fully and bring Him glory. So the disciple of Jesus, that is being somebody who who follows Jesus, not just listens to what He says, but does what He does, the disciple of Jesus has the attitude then, like Jesus, I'm all about doing what the Father has for me to do. I don't seek my own will, but I seek the will of Him who sent me. I love the Father, and I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And if He calls me to pursue holiness, then with great joy, that's what I'm going to do. A faithful disciple has a submissive heart, understands. He, he walks under the great authority of this loving God and Father. He says, I'm doing whatever He wants me to do, because I love Him. Verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Do you hear how he's, he's laying on the, the urgency here to see this in all of its gravity? To continue in sin is to reject a person. It's not just to reject a teaching. It's not even just to reject the teaching of God. But it's to reject God. To defeat sin to obey righteousness, then, is to run to Him. To run to Him. And to embrace Him as your all in all. He gives the Holy Spirit to that end. So when we say, I want this sin, we are saying, I don't want God. Because God's will is for us to have something better than this sin. Wants us to have Christ's likeness, which is better. When we reject this call to holiness and therefore reject God, we're not only rejecting joy, but we're also rejecting the means of our rescue and transformation. That's, that's worth repeating. I'm going to say that again. When we reject this call to holiness, which is to say when we reject God, we're not only rejecting joy, but we're also rejecting the means of our rescue and transformation. You see, our relationship with the Lord is how we change. But what we tend to divorce the two in our minds. We tend to divorce the moral aims of the gospel from the relational aim of the gospel. 
Another way of saying that is that we recognize that the Bible teaches these two things about where the gospel is heading us. First of all, as we've seen this morning, the the Bible teaches that God has saved us so that we would be holy. We've seen it at least twice just in this passage. We also see in other places that God has saved us so that we would have a relationship with Him. 1 Peter 3.18 Jesus died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. So God has saved us to be holy. He has saved us to have a relationship with Him. We wrongly think that these are two unrelated things. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 3, please. 2 Corinthians 3. Perhaps we wrongly think that these are two unrelated ends of Christ's gospel work. That our growth in Christ's likeness is unrelated to our enjoyment of a relationship with Him. But listen carefully. When we marry the two, or to say it better, when we recognize how the Scriptures connect them, then growth in godliness is supremely enjoyable because it takes place within the context of a loving relationship with the Lord Jesus Himself. Now, I commend this entire passage to you. I wish we had time to go through it all. We don't. One verse, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now you can hear that sanctification language in there. We're being transformed from one image of one degree of glory to another. We're being made like Jesus. How is that happening? There's a participial phrase that precedes the main verb, beholding the glory of the Lord. Beholding the glory of the Lord. As we gaze at the glory of Christ, the Spirit works in us to transform us into the image of Christ. Beholding the glory of Jesus is the cause of our transformation. It's it uses to conform us to Jesus. Now, the Spirit does use the imperatives of the New Testament. That's how He, he gives shape and, and directs us about how to live, how to love Christ rightly. But I would submit to you that trying to change using only the imperatives as tools or only memorizing imperatives, only meditating on imperatives and doing that outside of vibrant fellowship with this person Jesus, that is to attempt to change without the fuel that God the Spirit uses to change us. So the greatest step forward in sexual purity is not going to be simply memorization of and meditation on imperatives to that effect, but also, and more importantly, meditation on the gospel and enjoyment of Jesus, the Jesus who makes us want to obey those imperatives out of love. Gaze at the love of Christ. Gaze at the love of Christ in the gospel, and you will grow with genuine affection for and enjoyment of Him, and you will never lack the desire to say no to any ungodliness around you. You just won't want to sin. I hear people talk about this all the time. When they, when they begin to really enjoy Jesus, they, they start to say things like, sin just doesn't 
appeal to me like it did. It's because there is this expulsive power of a new affection, affection for Christ. Beholding the glory of Christ, we are transformed from one degree of glory into another. Now some of us, some of us don't struggle with sexual sin per se, but perhaps as as we have considered these things this morning, we realize that we've come under the world's spell in a sense, in this sense, that we've become desensitized to these things. And we have begun to slowly agree with the world that this particular form of ungodliness isn't all that big of a deal. And this particular form of ungodliness, this isn't all that big of a deal. And maybe we've been wrong all this time about this other form of ungodliness. If that's the case, we need to repent of thinking thoughts that God doesn't think. We need to distance ourselves even from the thought that these things are acceptable or pleasing to God. They're not, and they're harmful. They're harmful. And when we affirm people in these things, we don't love them. We condemn them. Others of us are in the throes, perhaps, of sexual sin, or, or, or we're dealing with the aftermath. And I just I, I want to say to, to those of you in, in that situation, don't try to deal with this by yourself. Please don't try to deal with this by yourself. The irony is that this particular area of sin tends to be the one area of sin where everyone wants to deal with it by themselves, but they can't. They can't. And so I would would encourage you to consider this. The Lord Jesus is powerful to transform you. The means that He uses are the Word, prayer, and the church in your life. You need other believers in your life. God gave the church to the church to help the church be the church. So if, if, you've, if you find that this morning, look, I, I, I have an issue here and, and I've got to deal with this, please ask for help. Please ask someone for help. We offer biblical counseling here at Providence. It's free. And there is no stigma attached to asking for counsel. Our counselors get counsel. And do you know why that is? Because we believe what we say when we say that God has given the church to the church to help the church be the church. We need each other to help us grow in Christ. So if you come to somebody and say, I need help with this particular thing, look, you're not going to hear anybody saying, what a weirdo you are. Rather, they're going to say, hallelujah, I I will go the extra mile with you. I will bend over backwards to help you. Ask somebody. I I oversee the counseling ministry here at Providence. Ask me. If you know one of our counselors, ask them. We'll get you connected with the right person to help you. Now now, now listen, I've been a sinner long enough that I I know that the, 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 the devil is working overtime right now to convince you that what I am saying is is not good counsel for you. Okay? And I've counseled enough people in this area 
that I know he, he, there's somebody here right now that he's saying, yeah, garden variety sin, garden variety sexual sin, those counselors can help you with that, but not what you're dealing with. Not what you're dealing with. That is beyond the pale. and There's nobody that can help you with that. Listen, before God, before God, I tell you, I have heard everything. I have heard everything. And before God, I tell you, I have watched Jesus transform people from every imaginable deviation in the area of sexual life. There is nothing beyond the pale for this Jesus. Just ask for help. Just ask for help. You will find it. To all, where there's sin, repent, seek forgiveness, and lay that guilt down. Do not pick it back up. It's not yours. Jesus died for it. You, don't, you have no right to it. And it's an insult to Him for you to take it back up like a trophy and continue to carry it. You repent of it. You ask forgiveness. And then you follow Him in freedom. You follow Him. You follow Him in fellowship. Follow Him in adoration, in affection, and in worship. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, strong and kind, we thank You. Father, we're grateful that you have given us life in Christ, that we wear the righteousness of Jesus. What a comfort it is when we fail you to know that we, we do not stand before you in our own righteousness, but in the very righteousness of Jesus, with his perfect record credited to our account. And Father, we, we praise you, we thank you that you love us so much that you don't just declare us righteousness righteous in Jesus, but you actually continue to work in us and you actually make us like Him. We thank you for that. And Lord, we lift up those among us this morning who are struggling with sin. We pray that you would grant them freedom. Grant them freedom. Those who need help, we pray that you would grant them courage to ask for it. And that when they ask for it, they would find it, Lord. They would find freedom. and They would become one of these these, these folks who then turn and help others in an area where they thought they were completely hopeless. I pray that you would do that. Lord, for others who may be among us who have succumbed to the world's wisdom on this issue of, of, of sexual mores and purity and impurity, pray, Father, that you would conform our minds to the Scriptures, not to the world. That we would think your thoughts after you on these things. If we have adopted the thoughts of the world, please forgive us. Help us to fill our minds with your word and believe that you are a good God who has given us sexuality where you have given it to us for our good and you have forbade it where you have forbade it because where you have forbade it, it is harmful to us. We thank you for that. 
We thank you now, Lord, that in the freedom of Christ we can worship you. We pray these things in his name. Amen.